Hello and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua. I'm the orchestrator of all of this. Um, this lecture that I'm about to give was done for the, the TRU Psychology Club, the Thompson Rivers University Psychology Club. And so I was meant to do this last year while I was a board member and then things were canceled due to COVID and nearly a calendar year later, I was afforded the opportunity to do it again. And a large thank you to Kendall and Logan, who are the presidents of the board currently for setting everything up and allowing me the opportunity to do this. And so these were these were lots of ideas that I was kind of toying with earlier and a year ago. And so it would have been much different a year ago because I learned a lot of things throughout the year. And in that sense, I don't think I would ever be ready for something like this because I at the the rate the rate that I'm learning, I'm I'm able to incorporate so much more on a day to day basis. So um, if I were to do this uh, next year, it would be very different than it were this year. And so, yeah, I don't think I ever would have been ready, but I was really, I was really glad to to take the leap and step in. There's so much things that, that could have been incorporated into this. So I'm happy that it turned out the way that it did. And thank you a lot for supporting. Um, there are two things that I, I realized quite quickly after finishing that I had misspoken on. And one of which being the biosphere wasn't from the 1960s. It was from the 1990s. It, it finished it finished development in the 19, 1991 and the other one being the the i misspoken the, the the theory of entropy is actually the second law of thermodynamics and not the not the third so my apologies for those and i'm sure there are a variety of other misspeaks and and errors on my part throughout the presentation so um if you notice any of those please let me know i'd love to to rectify myself in those and i profusely apologize for any any um any issues with that so if there are any questions please feel free to directly message me via instagram or i'm not sure facebook maybe and also any questions you can comment them on the on the youtube and i'll i'll hopefully get back to you and maybe do a video on the questions um what else yeah this is a visual presentation this is largely visual it was done in in PowerPoint. So I, I use lots of visuals and I think those are important. So if you're listening, then I'll, uh, I'll make the thumbnail, the wheel of samsara that I, I psychoanalyze towards the end. Um, but besides that, it's, it's unfortunately largely in video. So if you're listening to it, then maybe just go check out the slides. Cool. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for the support. It was, it was a really fun time. I, I hope to do something similar to this in the future. And if there's enough positive feedback about this, I'll, I'll maybe consider doing something on my own and, or finding someone to team up with and do this. So yeah, thanks. Cool. I hope you guys enjoy. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Let's, let's get this thing going. Uh, hello. My name is Joshua McBratney Mullaney. Um, I, I did five years of university at Thompson rivers while playing volleyball for the, the men's team and the Wolfpack and during that time, I was taking psychology and sociology. And during my, during my third year, I, going from my third year into my fourth year, I suffered a, an acute Achilles rupture. So that took me out for an entire year of volleyball. I did that in the summer, and then it's a, about a full year of recovery before you can get back into to competitive athletics. So, so during that time, I dove into a lot of these concepts and, and I had a friend to help a lot with that. And so that's, that's where I got a lot of these concepts from is during that time, I 
dove into personality development and and saw how these related to my life personally. And the summer following that that accident in that school year, I I ended up going to Asia for about four months. And during that time, I was able to 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 study culture and religion in a variety of Southeast Asian countries, um, quite in depth with a lot of people that I ended up really respecting and looking up to during my time. So, so that's, that's a, another place where a lot of this information comes from. So I'm very thankful for um, that, that experience. And I'm, I'm very blessed to have had that experience in, in that injury and being able to kind of dive into myself and dive into different religions and cultures and study other things as well as myself. And um, I wouldn't have been able to do that without one of my friends who I'd actually like to, to dedicate this to. And, and that's my, my friend, Randy, who's kind of been there the whole time. And I think he's one of the only people in the world that I could sit down with and talk to these things. He's a, he's an absolute whiz kid and genius. And so I wouldn't have been able to, to get where I am without him. And I wouldn't, this wouldn't be what it is without him. So I'd like to, to thank him very much for that and, and dedicate this to him. Um, another area I'd like to address before we begin is the is a land acknowledgement, and so I think lots of land acknowledgements are end up being kind of a, a, a tongue in cheek thing that people do out of necessity. And what I would like to do more than acknowledge that just only that TRU is is situated on the unceded land of the Sequoia people is that all of the land in in America is in some way or another unceded land, and so I, I believe it's important for us as individuals to to make an individual decision to understand the the area that we're in and in a way that we can kind of incorporate ourselves into the culture and the and, and a big part of that is the land so understanding the bands that were there before before any europeans colonization began here and understanding the the cultures and why roads are named the way that they're named and why why areas are named the way that they're named and kind of being able to so I, I encourage and even challenge you to to delve into develop a, a more solidified understanding of the the land that you're situated on and understand who came before you and yeah go support indigenous um, community and culture it's a very beautiful thing and, and I hope that it continues to be so here we go so going into this I I decided to to set two goals for myself and, and one being one that was quite strictly for me in a, in a narcissistic way and then one being more so for you. And so the, my goal for you is to create a relatable framework for personality development by tying together concepts and, mul and models from multiple disciplines. So in that I take a, a relatively generalist perspective to a lot of these things and, and try to tie things together. And I think that a lot of the, the disciplines that we enter are they're kind of they they aid each other in a in a multifaceted way. So so um so you could say that they're they're all a, in some way a spider's web connecting to one another. And and um, physics relates to biology, which relates to chemistry, and and that relates to psychology. And and they're all of these consistents. And and music gets in there, and and all of these other things. We're all interconnected. It's very difficult to to take things out and to pull them apart. So. So that's the idea of becoming an expert in one thing is to take that one thing and understand it completely. But I've, I've attempted to take more of a generalist perspective because I, I think that's what I excel at is, is tying things together and, and understanding how things relate and work with alongside one another. And 
generalism is a little bit of a derogatory term in, in academia. So I, I wear that with a badge of honor like Joseph Campbell did. And then for me, this was a, a way to force myself into creating a, creating a foundation for, for a literary work that I hope to, to muster into being, let's say. So this is where we'll start off. And this is, this is called the zone of proximal development. It was developed by a, a Russian cognitive psychologist by the name of Lev Yugovsky, who unfortunately died at around 38. So he was unable to, to completely flesh out this idea. And I, I use this quite a lot in my coaching and my teaching. I was in Denmark this past year. Or, so that's another part of my story. I guess I ruptured my Achilles, went and traveled Asia, played another year of volleyball, decided to go and play professional volleyball and pursue a teaching career kind of. And so while I was, while I was teaching English to a bunch of Danish kids, while well, they didn't speak English and I didn't speak Danish, we, we really dove into this model. And, and this is what I use for my coaching. This is my, I would say my, my map for, for coaching. And so we'll start in the middle and move outwards. I think that's the way, the best way to do this. And so Lev Yugovsky was, was much more concerned with the, the social and nurture approach to cognitive development where as where someone like um, Jean Piaget, who's another very famous cognitive psychologist, was, was very concerned with the, the biological mechanisms at play throughout cognitive development. So, so Piaget was concerned with, and it's, it's amazing because Piaget did his entire, all of his research with, I think it was two or three of his kids. And so he had three case studies where he generalized these results and was staggeringly accurate with a lot of them. And so where where Jean and Yugovsky uh, break apart is, is where um, Piaget was more looking at the formative years and development. And so the difference between children and, and their age. So why a five-year-old can, can carry out this psychological process, whereas a, a two-year-old can't, or why an eight-year-old is so much more developed. And, and he was looking at things such as language and understanding of our environment and being able to to put ourselves into the shoes of others. And, and some people would call that empathy, but it's, it's theory of mind at the, at the smallest. So that's all I'll say about Piaget. But Yugovsky was much more concerned about the, the I would say, long-term development and, and how we learn socially and in a nurture perspective. And so, so Yugovsky was, he was looking at how we, how we learn in a day-to-day -day manner throughout our lives. And so he started with this middle area and, and this is what he called the, he, he called this what I know. And so these, these parentheses, these brackets that I have are, are my doing um, to tie this in later. And so he considered this what I know. And so, so that's consciousness in, in the way that I look at it is that this is the conscious mind. And, and these are the things that we know that we can't really take away from ourselves. And so, our, let's say our ability to walk and our ability to, to multiply nine times nine and innately know that it's 45. And, and there are all of these, these things, these skills that we've acquired throughout our lives that we've, we've kind of taken in the external world and, and now we house it in our brain and our memories. And, and that's this innate knowing of ourselves. And, and so I'll call that consciousness or our current conscious mind. Not, I don't want to talk about consciousness just yet. Um, and then one level up is what Yugovsky would have called, um, what I know, should I have the help from another? 
or with difficulty to myself. So, so in this area, it's the, it's, it's more of the, the teacher role comes into this. So a teacher's capability to walk around a class and, and assist in incorporating, let's say some mathematical concept for a child and kind of telling them why something works and how something works. And then over time that becomes solidified and things move from what I could know into what I know. And so this, what I know grows outwards and, and, and I, and as the, the, what I know grows outwards, as does the, what I could know. And so it's this, and so I call that the, the integration of the unconscious in the consciousness. So things that are outside of ourselves actually become part of ourselves. And in that way, we, we continue to grow and those things outside of us become a part of us. And I, I'd like to use the metaphor of a, um, a glass object being blown. So a glass blower takes this, this red hot molten piece of glass and makes it larger and larger and larger and larger. And, and from a, from a Piagetian perspective, when we're first born, that's that red hot piece of glass and we can kind of mold it in, and that's in, that's almost infinite potential that we have there. And so as we're young, we're very plastic and malleable and we have this opportunity to, to grow rapidly. And, and that's what this area entails is, is the glass itself. So that's the boundary of the glass that is expanding outwards and incorporating the unconscious in the consciousness and inside of that glass, it's consciousness. So from an alchemical perspective, that's mercury, that's the vessel which contains who we are. And, and so, so now, we'll, now we'll move into what I don't know. And I guess I've been talking about that a little bit and that's the unconscious and that's, that's ad infinitum. So, so there's this, um, this Socratic paradox. And so Socrates said that, um, the only thing that he knew was that he knew nothing at all. And that's a paraphrase, but, but that's the general concept is that the more you know about one thing, the more you see all of these rabbit holes that you could go down, which would lead you to an infinite amount of, of possibilities and variability. And a good example of this would just be to, to pick up any, any academic literature and, or any literature at all. And anytime that someone gets referenced, you can always go and read their book. And in that book, there will be another reference and you could go and read that book and there'd be another reference. And, and over time, it, it, it kind of solidifies this topographical map of, of the content in all of those books because they overlap in some way. And I think that's the best way to consolidate learning is to, um, to expose yourself to multiple sources of, of information. And, and as those overlap, they become more consolidated and you understand things a little bit better. But it's important to understand that the un unconsciousness is is infinity and not it it, it goes for forever. Um, yep. So so this is how, this is a little bit how I look at personal personality development. So I take a, a Freudian Jungian perspective here. And um, early in Freud's career, he postulated that the conscious mind was the ego. So the ego was just this thing that that was us. And then as time went on, I've kind of adapted this from Freud and Jung. And I believe that the, the ego is the boundary of that. So that glass that we have, that glass, that boundary is, is the ego. And everything within that is the conscious mind. So um, I've obviously uh, made a, some kind of provocative bridge with the title of this, this, this uh, presentation from the book Ego is the Ally by Ryan Holiday. 
and I actually haven't read that book, so maybe it was unfair of me, but I, um, I think that it's, it's very interesting that people consider ego to be the ally, whereas, or sorry, ego to be the enemy, because I, I believe that as it's the outside of our, of our personality and our conscious mind, it, it's very simple to look at it as the enemy, because it's this thing that maybe swades off the, the outside world and says no to things because we, we maybe think that we're too good for it, or, or maybe we, we don't think that we're ready or we don't think that we're worthy, but, but if we're able to, to alter that perspective and, and kind of develop a, a symbiotic relationship with our ego, where we're able to, to push into these new, these new realms of the unconscious mind and incorporate those into ourselves and into our consciousness, then I think that that's, that's, that's the beauty of learning. That's the beauty of, of a, the symbiotic relationship that we could develop is that if we accept that ego can be the enemy, but also the ally, then we could possibly shift that and develop a, a better understanding of ourselves and how we're able to learn personally. And then once again, unconsciousness is ad infinitum. It goes on for forever. It's, there's, there's no way that you can incorporate the entire unconscious. Okay, so this, this requires a little bit of a story. Um, during, my, during my first Achilles rupture, I was, I was down in Phoenix for, for a while and I was able to rehab down here because my, I have more readily available access to a, a pool, which is, I would say, almost imperative to learning how to walk again. And so there are lots of citrus trees around here if the climate is forgiving enough and also very unforgiving, but Thankfully, there are lots of citrus trees, and, and I spent lots of time gardening and, and lots of time watering these citrus trees. And as time went on, as and I learned more about them, I, I learned how to properly properly give resources and and irrigate the trees. So, what I found was that the canopy, which is what I would consider to be consciousness, so that's the that's once again the vessel that that's the thing that contains us. So the role of the canopy is number one to, to obviously get get sunlight and convert that into energy and number two is it's to to keep the the trunk and under the canopy dry and and why would that be because obviously you, you want as much water as you can as a tree so what's the point of that um and i started to realize that it was because the the water would hit the top of the canopy and move off to the sides and so you, you never want to water the trunk of the canopy. You want to water the outsides because the root system is, is moving towards the outsides. So the goal of the canopy is to, to move things off to the side and allow the root systems to reach outside of itself. And so, so this is the canopy. And when it rains, you want to allocate resources to the outside of the canopy so that the root system can reach for that and, and back to that Lebyugovsky uh, diagram, then this would be the known, and this is what is known with help or difficulty to myself. So this is that reaching capability. And out here's the unconscious. And so another thing that I learned was that there, there's a place called the Biosphere 2 in Tucson, Arizona, and the Biosphere, the Biosphere 1 being Earth, because the Earth is a biosphere. So in this, in this biosphere was a 
I believe it was a project in the 1950s or 60s um, by NASA, and they were attempting to develop a model for a lunar base. So it's a closed system where eight people go in for an entire year and they don't leave, nothing goes in or out, all the oxygen is recycled. And so they have every single ecological sphere. So they have forests and um, grasslands and deserts and ocean. And what they found was that the trees were falling over in the, in the rainforest. So that's where they were getting a lot of their food was maybe a banana tree or something. So it would, it would get to a certain, a certain size and then it would collapse under its own weight. And so, or any, any external factor would cause it to fall. So they were wondering why. And it turned out that the lack of stress from any wind was the culprit. So when trees get blown by the wind or by a storm, it produces a stress response, which triggers a biological mechanism, which also pushes the roots outwards and downwards so that it can better anchor itself. So this is the idea of, um, you could say, preparing for the largest storm by allowing yourself to blow back and forth occasionally. And so, so that's what I, I, I kind of learned that from the trees down here was that um, the, the necessities to growth are the area in which you allocate your resources as well as the willingness to face adversity willingly. So this is my, this is a way that I've kind of incorporated that psychoanalytic perspective into the same image. And so I have in the middle here, the conscious mind and order. And, and this is the, the Freudian libido on the, so that's kind of where the, where the resources go and, and libido isn't necessarily a sexual term in, in this Freudian sense. It's, it's a, it's a platonic term of the energy that we give. So, so if you were to say that, that it was a, it was sexual in nature, then that would just be the energy that you're exerting from your own personal energy stores into a, a sexual manner. So the way that I see it is more platonic. And so it's this psychic energy, it's this, this attention to what we're doing. So you can be on your phone for 30 minutes and depending on where you allocate the resources of that attention that you're giving, you're going to be getting different outcomes. So you could learn a new language or you could cruise Instagram for 30 minutes. So it's, it's generally up to you. And that's your, that's your, um, your ability to allocate your resources in a way that you would see best to increase your capacity over time. So this is the conscious mind here and outside is the integration of the consciousness of the unconscious into consciousness. So, so here in the conscious mind, we have order and outside of this is chaos. And you could say that learning would be the, voluntary introduction of chaos into order and and so back to that that tree example of the tree swaying back and forth it's um by by watering the tree at the trunk of the tree and reducing any external stressors or stimuli you're actually doing the tree a disservice because it's um it's what you could call superficial growth is that the canopy is getting larger and the tree is getting bigger and it looks very good 
but the, 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 the second that something happens where it faces some kind of adversity, it immediately knocks it over and the root system comes out. And, and you can see that lot psychologically where someone has a, a significantly, a significant enough event that it completely uproots them from their lives. And, and so if, if you don't go outside of yourself consistently and, and push yourself to incorporate that unconsciousness into your conscious mind, then, then you're, you're setting yourself up to, to be, to be swallowed by, by the whale and to, to find yourself kind of in this realm of chaos and you're not ready for it because you haven't, you haven't dug your roots down deep enough. And so that's what happens when, when we don't, when we don't spend our, our libidinal energy on the, the external and moving outwards and to incorporate that unconsciousness in the consciousness and, and to develop these, um, these coping mechanisms. And yeah, so if we don't, if we don't do that, then it's, it's bad. It's not good. It's uh, yeah. Um, and so, so back to what I was talking about earlier is that, um, oh yeah, let's talk about, uh, so, so there's a, so that's, that's the risk. That's the risk of, of stagnancy is that if you continue to spend your, your, your psychic attention or your psychic energy on things that you already know how to do or things that you think you're good at. And, and even we could call this a comfort zone. So that's a term that, that gets used often is we, if we, if you don't step outside of your comfort zone, one day, something's going to happen that will absolutely throw you into chaos and, and your entire life will seem like it's over because you, you haven't adapted and you haven't moved outside of yourself and it, it'll force you to move outside of yourself and, and maybe you won't be ready for it. So better to do that willingly than to, uh, than to wait until it happens in, in my perspective. But, and so this is the conscious mind, this is order. And, and then that's another thing, sorry, is that stagnancy isn't irrational in my view, um, because anything outside of ourselves in chaos is the unknown and, and anything in the unknown is innately unknowable and, and you couldn't know what happens if you were to, to dive into it. So you could be eaten by a tiger or a dragon if you step into a forest in the wrong place. And if you start swimming in the ocean, there can always be a shark. And when I was a kid, I always thought that maybe there was a shark in the lake because, because those are these those are these symbols that we've developed for the unknown because they're so poignant and we have such a, a difficult time removing metaphors from, from our psyche. So, so these are symbols that have been developed over time and it's the, the forest that we go into because we want to explore that. And, and once we've explored it, we've incorporated it into our consciousness. And, and, and once we've explored the forest where, where we see it to be deepest and darkest, then we're able to, to cope with the rest of the forest as well. And, and as we, as we explore that unconsciousness, it gets easier to explore it in the future. So one example of this would be the, um, the myth of Medusa or the basilisk in Harry Potter, where it's this, this, this snake that we see and, and that freezes us, that petrifies us. And that's a, a physiological response that we, we, we've received over, evolution because we co-evolved with snakes and they likely ate us a lot. So it was good to be afraid of snakes. And, and so now we have this response to completely freeze when we see that. And, but the more that we, the more that we willingly seek out that, that adversity, then, then we have an ability to face it in the future and not freeze and not be petrified. And, and that's kind of the idea of resiliency in, 
in the face of adversity is that you resiliency isn't the the desire to to do away with all chaos it's the it's one's ability to move into chaos and face that in a way that improves them in the future and that's resiliency to adversity and so it's not it's not irrational to be stagnant it's very scary to move outside of ourselves and that's something that we should keep in mind and so another risk of of um exploring the unknown is is um or another risk of stagnancy sorry is that potential erodes so anything in the unconscious mind anything in chaos is potential so that's why there's treasure in the deep so often so in the in the egyptian book of the dead in the pauper savanni and he goes into the into the underworld and into the unconscious into into chaos and he goes through this death rebirth cycle where he he comes out with 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 this gold this not literal gold but but gold for his people so we can come back and and share this this knowledge with him with them that that he's developed over this time and it's the it's the same motif as the um the the knight that goes and slays the dragon and and goes and takes the gold and comes back and shares it with his village and that's kind of this idea is that in the unknown it's it's not just frightful because there can be a dragon but it's also it's also beckoning because there can be a dragon and and there's that there's that potential there so i'd also like to to discuss really quickly um how humans learn because that that might be more um relevant to you than how trees learn so generally from so this is from a neurochemical perspective what happens is that there's there's autonomic arousal and that releases norepinephrine in the brain and so that that's the this this kind of anxiety mechanism so if there's too much adrenaline there's too much norepinephrine in the brain then then you become anxious and and that's a that's actually a precursor to learning so there there's a requirement for anxiety before we learn something and and then during that time of learning we're we're more or less a, a pro, we're setting a goal and approximating how our behavior interacts with that goal so if you have a goal so let's say let's say shooting a free throw that's something easy enough so you shoot a free throw your goal is to hit the basket and if you miss then you know that you have to change your form in some way and every time that you miss you're you're setting up a marker and and that's where acetylcholine comes in acetylcholine is kind of this marker this flag that is this this need for this need for attention and this need for change and that that sparks neuroplasticity later on and and that happens in in the first half of sleep not th- just the first half but in in deep sleep non-rem or non-rem non-rem deep sleep so not when you're dreaming but before that and that's that's typically when we tend to learn motor skills and and facts and so we so we have this arousal and then we fail at something and then that failure is an approximation of what we need to do to to actually reach that goal and we can actually create this positive feedback loop within ourselves because once we get that goal we're we're flooded with dopamine and so that, that dopamine is this um we can say it's a it's a draw to an external stimuli that we've achieved something that we want to so so the two happiness drugs you could say are serotonin and dopamine and dopamine is much more cued into external stimuli and incorporating that into ourselves whereas serotonin is more of a of a relaxed neurochemical where we're 
we're content with where we are right now. So that's that's animals that are typically on the top of their dominance hierarchies are higher in serotonin than, than at the bottom. Um, and, and so we can create this positive feedback loop with dopamine where if we're aware of the anxiety that it is required to learn, then we, we kind of know that when we feel anxious and frustrated about something, we are engaging that neuroplasticity and we're about to learn and we're going through a learning bout. And by, by hitting that dopamine, by getting something right, by answering a question right, or hitting that free throw, that releases dopamine and, and that encourages us to continue with this bout. And, and so that can, can increase the, the length of that learning bout rather than just becoming frustrated and leaving it. So, so I, and Carol Dweck is someone that does a lot of really good work on this. And the, um, so the, the two, I, I would say two of the, the most important issues in learning right now is that we don't get, we don't learn something by getting it right every time we, number one, we, we learn something by allocating resources to that thing. And then we learn by failing at that thing. So the only, the only way to get better at something is by failing at it. And, and I think that's really important for people to know because I don't think a lot of people do. So this is, a, this is what I would consider to be a temporal scale of, of how we perceive our life to go. And these two is a, these are an evolutionary biology debate. You might have to move me to see this, but this is gradualism. So initially there's the, what the Zen would call the, the ebb and flow of life. And, and in that it just looks like a sine wave. So it's just up, down, up, down, these crests and these troughs and, and, and they're relative to each individual. So what ends up happening normally is you have a good day and then you have a bad day and you have a good day and you have a bad day. And, and we kind of have to go through that up and down process. And there's no such thing as having a good day every day or a, or a bad day every day. And sometimes you can have a good day every day, and, but often you have to kind of dredge through a day to make it a good day. And, and it's that ability at the end of the day to say, I really put in my, my, up, my utmost effort. That's what made it a good day rather than the the actual events that happen. And so a few examples of this. First, I'll, I'll say why it's relative. Um, there was a, there's an author named Alexander Sovnichkin and he was, he spent about an eight year bout throughout the, so the, the greater part of a decade in the, the Gulag archipelago in Russia. And so he was in, in work camps for eight years of his life and he would wake up before the sun rose and go and march through negative 30 degree weather to a, to a city that they were building and he would build things for the entire day and get eight ounces of bread per day. And then he would walk back as the sun was setting and, and there's a life, sorry, there's a book that he wrote called A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And in that book, he, he goes through a day that um, you and I might consider to be unbelievable or impossible to live through and at the end of this day it's it's, it's beautiful because he he discusses how it was actually a good day and it was a it was a very good day he he didn't get beat up or thrown into an ice box for 10 days or or any of those things so so he has this so th so there's this relativity to this so a good day for me might, might not be a good day for you and and so this moves up and down this this sine wave moves up and down for each of us and, and so we can't compare our days to each other it's tough to do that
<clears throat> Another good example of this is children through adolescent years and the volatility of this. So, so for a child, you, because they have such a, such a limited experience on life, you give them an ice cream cone and it immediately becomes the best day they've ever had. And they drop that ice cream cone and it's immediately the worst moment of their entire life. So, so there's this volatility, volatility to this. And that's kind of how we, we approximate our behavior over time is that it goes up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, super volatile. And then over time, we, we narrow that into this view of just, we kind of become more consistent over time. I'm sure that you've realized that as you've gotten older. And, and that's the most micro scale that I can put this into is the day to day. And then this one is called punctuated equilibrium. So this is an evolutionary term. And a way that I could put this in personality terms is the, the seasons in which we develop. So, so maybe you have a, a boat where you're kind of just going through the motions and not doing much. And then, and then you get a girlfriend and you, there are all of these positive emotions associated with that. And you, you're able to kind of fall in love and you get this really beautiful upswing and your, your life completely changes overnight. And then it's more normalcy. And then maybe you get into the, the school that you want to go to and, and then it becomes normalcy. And so that's all this, that's, uh, that ties in with this Zen concept of nothing special in that once you've, once you've achieved something, so our, our way to achieving that thing is, is special. And then once we've achieved it, it becomes nothing special. So, I don't wake up every morning and say, wow, I'm totally jazzed that I played five years of university and ended up being a professional volleyball player because I, I lived those things. So, so those things just became part of my life and they became nothing special. And I'm sure you have, uh, you have parts of your life that are, are similar to that where you wanted to get there for your entire life. And then once you got there, you realized that it was, there was something else, there was a new thing. And, and so we can, we can put these in these terms of chaos and order and, and chaos is this learning new things and, and everything changes and then order are these bouts of just regular learning. So the chaos is, is where you elicit that resiliency that you've developed. And, and I think that uh, there's, there's this really lovely young quote where he says that um, the, the greatest way to, to develop yourself into the utmost person that you'd like to be is to to undergo as much responsibility as you can without breaking under the load. So, so that's this idea that take on as much responsibility as you can and kind of voluntarily throw yourself into this chaotic realm so that you're continuously growing. And, but don't do that to the extent that you're going to fail at everything that you do. You still want to succeed. And, and kind of another way to look at this nothing special idea is that when, we, when we're goal setting, it's good to have a very large goal in mind because the, the dopaminergic systems, so that happiness system that I was talking about earlier, um, that's associated with external stimuli and external objects is it, it's actually, we release dopamine more so on the way to that goal. So our anticipation of the goal itself is the thing that motivates and drives us rather than the goal. And so that's a good way to look at this. And now from a, now I should, I should talk about this from an evolutionary perspective. So, let's say that about seven, seven million years ago, we, we um, broke off from, from chimpanzees. And then there was this large bout of evolutionary change. And we, our hands changed a little bit and our hips started to tilt upward so that we could walk. 
uh, bipedally. And then, and so that's, that's, um, so it's called Artie. That was our, our closest link to chimpanzees to my knowledge. And then once again, things go relatively normally and then boom, another large change, our hands change again. Um, our brains are growing a lot. I think our brains grew three times the size of what they were uh, in that in that period, in the period of chimpanzees to now. And then, so after Artie, it was Lucy, and then there were pre-modern Homo sapiens, and then modern Homo sapiens. So, so we're constantly undergoing these processes of order and a lack of change, followed by chaos and large change. And then this is gradualism. So the gradualists argue that there was just this we kind of had this consistent growth rather than uh, a more volatile, chaotic growth. And, and so, sorry, I'm just trying to find, there it is. And so this is a, a fun thing that I like to do with this example is that, because, because it seems reasonable in, in our lives, we, like now we look back and we kind of think, well, I was consistently growing, but in reality, the, the adversities that we went through and the, the resiliency we had to show in the face of those adversities was, it was much more of a chaotic bout. And there are these bouts of, of order and regular living followed by these chaotic swings of emotional breakdowns and depression and, and all of these things that kind of, kind of push us into chaos and allow us to retain order after we've, we've kind of dealt with them. So, so I think this is a little bit more what life looks like. So if this original one was maybe your, your athletic life or your relationship with your body, then this could be your interpersonal relationship with your parents. And oh, no. And this could be your interpersonal relationship with your friends. And this could be your work life. And so we're all over the place here. And then if you were to graph this and draw a line of best fit, it would look a lot like that. And so that's where gradualism comes in. So gradualism is really just punctuated equilibrium observed from a different temporal perspective. So this is um, the death rebirth cycle. And this is what I would consider to be the the philosophy and the, the idea of psychological death and rebirth. And, and generally, I think this is kind of what lots of religions were, were striving towards when they conceived these ideas, these ideas of hell, because they weren't, they weren't mutually exclusive to Catholicism or, or any of those, uh, those, those religions that you would consider to be at the tippy top of the, the hierarchy. Um, heaven and hell are actually, they're, they're omnipresent in lots of different religions. So, um, I'll put on my laser pointer. So going back to that uh, that punctuated equilibrium perspective that I discussed in the previous slide, this is kind of where we this is kind of this state of order, and then we begin to fall into this chaos, and <clears throat> and and there's there's there is this slow dive into chaos, and and we can kind of feel it and see it happening, and sometimes we're thrust into chaos and. And the idea of voluntarily taking on responsibility to, to increase our capacity for resiliency in the face of adversity, 
that's this idea of being able to to come out of chaos faster and more efficiently than we have in the past and recreate order because we're we're always falling into this there's a and that's the idea of entropy which is the third law of thermodynamics which states that all things are moving from order into chaos so everything's getting more chaotic with time and the only thing to to subdue that that chaotic state is to put in effort and energy and that's the only way that we can we can maintain order is with but by number one kind of allowing ourselves to dance with chaos like i said earlier it's the learning is the the voluntary interaction with chaos to incorporate to incorporate unconsciousness into the conscious mind that's bringing chaos into the into order and, and expanding ourselves in in that way and so so in in that way in that in that view of entropy there's always chaos in order there's always something the chaos is always trying to make its way into order and that's kind of the that's the idea of of the snake in the garden of eden is that there's this there, there's this chaotic essence within this perfect garden and and uh, that, that's another there's another motif for that and that's the siren so the siren call for for sailors is that there's this there's this beautiful order and, and infatuation that you hear and and that beckons you and that infatuates you and and to fall into an infatuation within order and to put down our arms and to 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 reduce the amount of chaos so to water the tree at the trunk and to stop pushing the pushing the boundaries of our known that that stopping introduces chaos into our lives so with the siren it's the uh the siren sings the siren song and it's very beautiful and orderly and and in that infatuation of order the ship moves towards the order and crashes into the the cove that surrounds the sirens and then the sirens end up eating the ship or the the crewmates and and that ship is that that motif of of unknown and the water of the unknown and the water of chaos is that you're you're falling into this thing and then being consumed by it and so 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 it's good not to become infatuated with order and and with this idea of heaven because there there's always something around the corner which is which is encroaching itself upon you which is chaos and if that's kind of what i'm getting at here is that there's there's always this dip into chaos and there's always this climb to heaven so so you could maybe say that this is what Led Zeppelin was was considering when they when they sung uh, "Stairway to Heaven," um, and 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 something that I that I've tried to do with this is actually create a stairway so we're always going upwards. So the and that's the that's the idea of the afterlife is this thing that's better than the life that you're living now, and the only way to to go through that is to go through this bout of chaos and to go through adversity and showing resiliency in the face of adversity results in a better life for yourself. And a book that I, a book that I really liked that kind of exemplified this was the, uh, it's called the Tibetan book of the dead. And the Tibetan book of the dead is titled that, in an attempt to, to make a play on the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is actually called the Papyrus of Annie. And 
and in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's, it's actually called the, the Art of Liberation Through Understanding in the Between, and an even more precise uh, Hindu translation would be liberation through hearing in the intermediary. And, and I found those words to be very, very poignant because it could be liberation through understanding in the art of liberation through understanding in between rather than in the between. <clears throat> and the reason that they were, that, that it was named the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead rather than keeping that original name was because of the similarities between the two. And, and there's, there are generally lots of similarities between myth and religion because they're, they're, they're a framework. You could even call them a, a personalized therapy book because all of these stories tell us how to navigate the the, the life that we've been given in the chaos and order that we've been enthralled into or been, been enthralled with. And, and so, so this, this book, this art of liberation through understanding in the between is the, the goal of this book is to emphasize the number one, one's capacity to, to escape death and, and not a, not a literal death, but a psychological a psychological rebirth of, of ourselves. And, and I'll go over that in a little bit with a, with a drawing that I'll psychoanalyze. But it's this idea that we, we consistently through life go through these bouts of becoming a, an entirely new person. And so I'm not the same person as I was four years ago as the person that I was two years ago as the person that I was four months ago. So, so we're consistently going through this period of of renewal and we're renewing ourselves. And it's, it's that, that Phoenix myth as well, right? Because the, the Phoenix faces something and, and it, it dies. And, and then the fire cleanses that thing because fire is a, a cleansing element. And, and after, after the fire engulfs the Phoenix, then it becomes reborn and it raises and it rises from the ashes. So this is this idea that we, we have to kind of, delve into this fire and this this uh like this death rebirth process and we we need to go into hell this fiery entity to come out and be purified and to become uh, the better version of ourselves that we seek out and and this art of uh, this this art of understanding through the between it's it, it really pushes this idea of self-observation and they do that through the means of of meditation and dream analysis and and one's ability to lucid dream and, and I think what they're getting at more so than just sitting down and meditating is actually meditating on yourself and being conscious of the things that, that you would consider to be the, the lesser desirable things. And, and we could call that the shadow. So here we'll, we'll start at the bottom and we'll move upwards. So this is a Jungian concept. This is something that I got from his book, Ion. And, and essentially these are two pyramids stacked on top of one, an, one another, the, the self being the top and that's the, the, the archetype of the Christ or someone that we would consider to be the, the utmost of a moral standard and the bottom being the shadow and that's the, the opposite of that. <clears throat> and, and in the middle, we have 
the the self and the ego or the the conscious mind and the ego and so so this can move into either one of these boundaries and and this can develop lopsidedly or we're our goal is to move upwards but it's very possible to move down and often more than likely that we will move down if we're not aware of it so first i'll start with the shadow and i'll, I'll come back to this in, in just a second so this is a this is a patch that i have and this is actually um, Greek mythology. This is um, one of Zeus's sons. He's a demigod, and Zeus turns him into this bull-like thing for being too bullish. And so, so this is the this is what I would call the persona. So this is something that I got from Watts. This is really cool. This is this this persona that we give off to to other people. So this is something that that we project outwardly, and. And this is a, a way to show the entire world that we're absolutely perfect in, in every single bout of ourselves. And, and that's kind of how we, I mean, that's how we, that's how we make friends and that's how we, we make mates. And then, and then as time goes on, we kind of open ourselves up and, and we're like an onion with infinite layers and that we're consistently showing new parts of ourselves. But, but this is how we, this is how we portray ourselves to the external world. This is the persona. And then this is the, the other side. So here you can see that it's discolored and there are all of these uh, these these white lines going through and you can see all the shortcuts that have been taken and and this is what i would consider to be a part of the shadow uh the other part of that persona and it's the it's the reverse it's the flip side of it so it's the it's the 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 syzygistic tendency between our, our our predisposition to portray ourselves as this perfect entity versus the reality of ourselves and and who we are behind the mask. And so, so with all of these, these are, so there, there are two different ways that you could, or there are two different parts of the shadow. And so if we were to bring it back to that, that original metaphor of the ego and consciousness within, that, that's housed within the unconscious is that the shadow is part of both the unconscious and the conscious mind. So. So there, there are parts of ourselves that we would we would willingly change if we had that potential to immediately change it right now. And we would change those things if we had the, the capacity or the willingness to. And so that's part of the, the conscious shadow is are the things that we would change had we had we omnipresent capability over ourselves. Um, which lots of people would consider that they don't have, but um, I digress. And then on the other side of that is the, the, the unconscious things that we would change about ourselves if we knew that they existed. So, so maybe it's that time that one of your friends tells you like, Hey, maybe you talk too much, or maybe you do this thing, or maybe you may, maybe you uh, take advantage of this situation in a way that people didn't like. And, and maybe, maybe you didn't know about that and you, you're a little bit surprised by that. And that's, and then you have to incorporate that into your conscious mind and then, and then you have the opportunity to change it. So, that kind of goes back to that meditative state of, of self-observation and self-analyzation is that the more that we're aware of the things that we don't like about ourselves, then the faster we can change them or, or maybe not even change them, but it's the, it's, it's imperative to, to becoming a better version of ourselves, to know the things that make us someone that we wouldn't like. I, I think that's a way that you could put it. So, so one of Watts, uh, one of his, um, a piece of advice that he gives is to acknowledge the fact that you're an, an absolute rascal. And I like that quite a bit. I like that word. 
and so now we're back here and so 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 the shadow we'll start at the beginning and move upwards and so the shadow as i said this is this this part of ourselves that we would change had we the number one awareness that that it was presenting itself or manifesting itself and then it's also the parts of ourselves that, that we proverbially sweep under the rug like it's the when we see a piece of trash in in, in a bush somewhere and we decide not to pick it up and and it's, it's kind of the to overcome the shadow is to be consistent with your moral self right so so often we're, we're out of alignment with ourselves and to incorporate the shadow is to understand it and, and kind of accept it and, and love it and and that's that lao su quote is um know thy enemy know thyself no that's not lao su sorry that's a that's greek um but, but we have to know our enemy and that's the only way that we really can know ourselves in this sense is that the shadow, sorry, my dog's moving around. Um, the shadow is this place that if we, if we know it, we can change it, but if we don't know it, then obviously we can't change it. And so we have to be willing to study ourselves and study that, that deep dark part of ourselves so that if, if, a, if an occasion or a situation arises in which we would do something that we wouldn't want to do regularly and we kind of, we act habitually and, and we, we become stunned. We become petrified. It's the same as that, that Medusa myth. Um, if we're faced with a situation where we're, we'd be forced to act immorally and we've never believed ourselves to, to have the potential to act in that way, then we're more than likely to act in that way because we become petrified or at least it becomes a, a flip of a coin. And in, Mil in Milgram's case, it was 66% uh, of people are more than willing to to murder someone else in cold blood if they can't see their face and that was the that was the main main argument during the the, the Nunenberg's trial was that they were, people were just following orders so they obviously hadn't considered what they were they were capable of before they followed those orders and so now let's move upwards um i don't want this to get too bleak so these are these are these archetypal ideas, and these are um, I've tried to give examples uh, during each of these, but these are these are characters or people within stories that would be the exemplar of behavior, and that we should and we we could and should uh, model our behavior after. So, so for each one, I've given two or three examples of someone that we maybe should embody, and we should move towards. And then on the other side, a, a shadow of that version and someone that we, we maybe shouldn't model our behavior after, lest we kind of reap the, the consequences of that. And so, so these, are, these could be um, people that you look, look up to in your life. That could maybe be a, another way to put it is that we, we have these stories that we tell ourselves and that we tell other people. And, and uh, to use these people as role models, that's essentially what these are, are, are role models that that we can look towards when we're in a state of, of chaos and the unknown and, and we can ask ourselves what they would do in this situation and we can model our behavior after them. And, and this, is, this is something that I love, the innocent, the, the fool. Uh, they're, not, they're not necessarily exclusive, they're a little bit different, but, but we start every story as the fool and we finish every story as the fool. So we go into our, to our hero's journey not knowing what we're getting into and then at the end, we're just restarting that process. So, so this entire cycle is, it, it's cyclic. It goes over and over and over again. And we continuously move from, 
from this ego to the self. And then once we've achieved the self, then there becomes another higher version of ourself. And so we're always kind of, we're chasing this goal. We're eliciting that dopaminergic response to, to goal setting. And then we're always looking outside of ourselves to what we could become. Should we act in the, in the most utmost moral way and, and, um, and willingly take on responsibility and, and go into chaos and show resiliency and, and, and face adversity willingly. Um, and now we'll go into the Christ figure or sorry, the, the self, which is, uh, what Jung wrote, um, Ion about was the Christ figure and the, that archetype of the self. And so, so these are the, I would say, indisputably people that act morally upright in, in the situations that they were given. And, and so we have Jesus Christ and Siddhartha Gautama, uh, which who's the Buddha and Kukwetsekwadl. Kukwetsekwadl was a, a Mesoamerican religious figure and he was very similar his, his path was very similar to that of christ and something that i found interesting was he actually over time became associated with the, the serpent of chaos and and um a part of his story is that he uh sorry a part of his story is that he he's, he's the serpent that brings the the clouds of rain and so, so that's this way in which he, he willingly brings chaos to, to create order. And in that way, he, he's this rain cloud. And then after the rain cloud, he, he, he ends the drought and creates order for his people. So, so that's another way that we could, we could maybe look at the, the relationship between order and chaos is that there needs to be order. There, chaos is the prelude to order. And there needs to be rain to be, to be sun and crops and, and happiness and life. And there has to be a winter for a summer. There's, there's this, this duality between them. And it's the, the yin and yang, or the, it's actually called the Tai Chi too. That's the, the complete figure. And, and yin and yang swim around each other. And they're not, it, it's a dance between the two. And they're not battling with one another, but they're, they're dancing to, to, to be consistent in there. They're always going round and round and round. That's why it's a circle. It's cyclical. It's an iterated game. And they're always bringing order and chaos into one another. And that's why there's, there's the dot on yin and there's the dot on yang of the, of the other. And that's to indicate that there's, there's order and chaos and there's chaos in order. And, and then one, I think that once you understand that it becomes a little bit more, the world becomes a little bit more uh, simpler to navigate. Um, another another really fun thing that I found was uh, so so Horus and Set in Egyptian mythology are this are very similar to to Jesus Christ and to Lucifer to Satan. That's actually where Satan comes from. Satan Set. That's the that's the evolution. And so so that that relationship that they share. Um, if you go back far enough into this, is going to be fun for the the astrology nerds is that there's a, and astronomy as well, hopefully there's a, there's something called a, it's, it's a, it's a quasi conjunction. So if planets pass each other within five degrees, then it's considered to be a quasi conjunction and, and Saturn and Mercury do that. And so Horus and Set represent Saturn and Mercury respectively. And, and so they're seen as this, this singular entity, and, and that's kind of what we are is that 
we're not either the self or the shadow. We're we're both, and we're the singular entity. So so in old Egyptian, the the heads of Set and Horus share the same body, and that's this idea that that we both represent the light and the shadow within the world, and and what we manifest is the is is what we is what we project outward, <clears throat> and a really good a really good example of that is the old indigenous parable of a little boy walks up to the, the chief of a village and says, or the shaman and, and says, I have, I have a, I have an issue. I have two wolves fighting inside myself, which one wins. And the chief says, whichever one you feed. Okay, so this is uh, this I had done for me by a, a very good friend that I met in Tibet. I ate more of his time than than I, I probably ate food over there. I would I would spend each day in this uh, in this dank, crowded room full of these um, these magical bowls and for for sound therapy, and I would just play bowls for twelve hours, and then I would. I would go to this guy's house and we would go through paintings together and he would teach me everything that he knew and <clears throat> and kind of instruct me on the on the Tibetan religion and, and Tibetan Buddhism and how that interacted with Hinduism and and there were all these beautiful connections that we found together. So I was very thankful for his time and the opportunity to do that. Um, so we'll, we'll start on the outside and then we'll go right to the hub and then we'll move down and around. So So this is Yama. This is yeah. This is this painting is actually called the Wheel of Samsara, also the Wheel of Life, also the Wheel of an Iterated Game. Um, that's a good way to look at it. So this is this is Yama. This is the the god of death and the god of time. So this third eye allows him to peer into both forward and backward time and space. So so this indicates that he's not human. This is his third eye. This is his ability to to move in dimensions that we're unaware of. And and so Yama's, he's, he's biting the, the wheel right here. And that's really similar to the Ouroboros, which is the, the snake biting its own tail. And, and that's even, um, that's inscribed on the, on the gate to the underworld in Egyptian mythology. So when, when Annie goes into the underworld, there's this, there's this Ouroboros on top and it's the head of the snake all the way around biting its own tail. And that's this idea of, of a consistent death rebirth cycle and renewal because the snake pulls itself from its own skin and when it sheds its skin it sheds its, its personage <clears throat> okay so now we'll now we'll go into the hub sorry I, um and these are these are the, the heads of the five buddhas so there's the white buddha and the yellow buddha and the beige buddha and the green Buddha and the red Buddha. And so this indicates that even within enlightenment, nobody's safe from, from death. And all of this, this wheel of life and this wheel of time, it's all encapsulated within death. And, and the, the two consistencies of life are transiency. So, so one's ability to change and the, the, the law that everything will change. And the second law is death. And so, so this Yama fella, he's, he's holding everything together and everything that we do is, is kind of under the, the guise of death because 
there's always this number one will will go through this death rebirth process psychologically but also physically everything will end one day and and it's important to to meditate on that idea that we're not going to be around for forever i find it motivating some people find it anxiety inducing to each their own <clears throat> so in the middle here we have the the rooster the snake and the pig and the rooster represents greed the snake represents arrogance and and anger and the pig represents ignorance and so so the original sin in Buddhism is um, is greed, uh, and not greed, but expectation. So what happens when we develop expectation? And, and this is also a Zen principle. Is Zen, uh, Zen Buddhism is, is the, the principle of no expectation, because if we develop an expectation for something, then, then we've conceived an ideal for the future. And if that future doesn't manifest itself, then we've we've essentially thrown what we would consider to be order into chaos and we're imposing chaos within ourselves and, and we're imposing chaos on ourselves by, by creating these expectations for life and for the things that we want. So it's a little bit different from, from goal setting in the sense that goal setting is this, this way that we can look forward into the future and, and hope to achieve something. And goal setting is really meant to, to manifest our days individually to, achieve that goal at the end, but to have the expectation and the goal, which, which kind of, it happens innately is that expectation is the, the, the root of suffering. You could say that. And so, so these three are all meant to be in the, in that similar Ouroboros fashion of biting each other's tails and they anger each other and go round and round. And the pig is actually the beginning of this entire circle because that's ignorance and that's self-ignorance. <clears throat> and, and that ties back to what I was discussing earlier with the, um, with our, our inability to, to understand ourselves and to, to acknowledge that shadow. And that's kind of as if we were to, to, to disavow a part of ourselves because we didn't like it. And going back to that tree metaphor, it's, neglecting a part of our, our root system that's become rotten. And rather than bringing it back to life, we, we kind of leave it alone and, and then it, it grows and, and manifests itself as a little bit of a cancer and continues to rot and, and move throughout ourselves. And that's how we become rotten. And so, so that ignorance to ourselves is, is, a, is a way to rot our, our root system and to, to erode our, our stability. And then on the outside here, we have a demon, which is um, ushering people into hell. And then on the other side of this, we have an angel that is ushering people into heaven. So people are going up and down the cycle. And that's kind of the, if you, if you look around, you can consistently see friends and relatives and just general people going, there are some people going into hell and there are some people going into heaven and everyone has their own cyclical journey. There's a No, I lost it. Oh, sorry, that's what it was. Um, so this is kind of this, uh, there's this really cool thing called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And one of the words that they have is, is sonder. And it's to, to understand that everyone has a life as intricate and complex as your own. So understanding that everyone else is going through this process as well. And it's not just you. And I think that's what they're trying to achieve with that. And now we'll go to the bottom. And 
and this is hell. So, so in Buddhism, there are 18 hells, 26 heavens though. And so, so it goes nine and nine hells for cold hells and hot hells. So there are nine hells of fire and nine hells of, of ice. And I believe the cold hells to be um, more predicated towards depression and anhedonia and, and, and kind of those emotions that disable us from feeling and experiencing things. And, and, and so that was a, it's kind of this activation of the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, this overactivation of our, of our rest and digest. And I think that's what they're getting at here is that there are people that find themselves in, in cold hells where they can't move and they can't get out of bed and they can't, they can't sleep or they they sleep too much. And that's kind of this, this, this anhedonic idea and this, um, this, this apathy that we hold where we can't feel things for other people and we can't feel things for ourselves. And, and that's a very real place. And then on this other side, we have the hot hells. And so, so this is a place of fire and within that fire, I think that's overactivation of the, the sympathetic nervous system. And so that's uh, that's over arousal. That's this increased, increased activation of the, the autonomic nervous system in that, in that sympathetic state where we're consistently anxious and we're, we're consistently producing, uh, there's something called the, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And, and over time that, that secretes uh, a hormone called cortisol from, from, from the adrenals. Um, no. I, I think it's over top of the liver. Um, and so, so that's this, that's this area that we, um, that we, we, we become anxious and if that's if that's consistently activated, if they, if this hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is is constantly activated and we're constantly producing cortisol, then that creates something called allostatic load, and that allostatic load has has lots of health problems long term, and it can deteriorate tissue within ourselves, and, and it can deteriorate heart tissue, and and so it's not good to be anxious all the time, and and that's a hell in itself is to be consistently anxious and and consistently over aroused in, in, in this neurotic state. And so those are the hells of Buddhism. And next we'll go over here. And this is the realm of the hungry ghost, which I would, there's still fire. You can see that there. So, so that indicates that it's still a hell in its own right. And so, so these are actually, uh, it, it's the, the, the Preta P R E T A. And that translates to hungry ghost. So this is the realm of the hungry ghost. And they have a very, a very narrow throat and a very large belly. So they're constantly hungry and they want to eat, but they can't eat. And I think there are two, two ways that I would analyze this is one being the, the, the struggles of addiction of, of wanting something, but not being able to consume that thing. And that's a hell in itself. And, and that's kind of what we were talking about with earlier that, uh, that navigating of the in-between and um, when we're thrust into chaos, how to bring order to that quickly, as, as quickly as we can to, to negate long-term potential damage. And so that's kind of this idea of the hungry ghost is that people get, pe people get thrown into chaos and then on their way out, they consistently have these, these relapses of, 
they're going into order and then they fall back into chaos and they're going back into order and they fall back into chaos. And, and, and it's difficult to, I don't think that you can, you can pull apart the concepts of um, rock bottom being uh, constructed by you psychologically and rock bottom being an entity in itself, because that's the idea of the, the art of understanding in the between is we construct that, that rock bottom. We, we get the opportunity to decide when enough is enough and, and start to bring order into ourselves. And maybe that can start with, with, a, with an isolated event, like cleaning your room or like cleaning your house. And then, and then from there, order, order begins to, um, to ripple outwards. And then another way to look at this would be the, a narcissistic energy. And I, I heard this from a, from a, a Buddhist monk in that, if we, if we're, if we're consistent, so there's, there's this, there's this idea of karma that I can't really pull away from any of this. And the, the Buddha considered karma to be intention. So it's all intention based. So if you think yourself to do the right thing, <clears throat> or you think yourself to do the morally just thing, and it turns out badly, then you're still, you're still pulling positive karma from that. So I, I found it, I found it a the karmic paradox, I would call it when I was in Tibet, I would often have people come to me and, and ask me if I could uh, give them money for their family so they could have food. And, and they would always tell me that I would get good karma from it. And, and that led me to think, well, if I, if I do something for the sake of getting good karma, then I'm not really doing something for you. And that would not give me good karma. And, and there's this, there's this fun Zen parable of a, a master and his disciple are having a conversation. The disciple says, Oh, what do you need me to do next? And he says, "Well, go do a, a genuine act of kindness. Go, go put out a genuine act of kindness and then we'll move on to the next thing. And the disciple spends days and days and days on this. And every time he comes back, he says, I've, I've produced a genuine act of kindness. I've done it. And every time the master says, well, no, that wasn't a genuine act of kindness. And it happens over and over and over and over again. And he can't produce this genuine act of kindness. And finally he's leaving the monastery and he's absolutely red with rage and he's about to quit. And, and he, he pulls back this door and before storming out, he steps to the side and, and allows this other, this woman to come in. And the master says, that was a genuine act of kindness. That was something that you didn't want to do, but you did it for the good of someone else. And it wasn't self-serving in any way. And, and that is, that is positive karma. And so we kind of, we, we, I think that we've created a, a bastardized version of karma in the West, and I'm not a huge fan of it, but that's, that, I think that's a good story to, to portray this, this particular concept that I'm aiming for. So, so there's this narcissistic idea of karma in that if you're always putting out energy for yourself and, and expecting to receive something in return, then, then, then all of your energy is actually being recycled in yourself and you're not giving energy outwards to, to those that you love your you're, you're expecting energy to be returned instantly rather than just giving and being grateful and generous and, and then allowing them to, to give you their own energy. So, so it's much less of a, it's, it's a closed system energy, which over time corrupts. And now we'll move to this one, these little fellers. So here we have the, the animal realm and I think the animal realm represents number one, people that are governed by the, the Freudian id. And so the id is this, uh, 
you, you could call it the limbic system from a neurological perspective. Um, but it's, it's the things that drive us to survive. So our drive to, to eat and drink and reproduce. And, and, and there are often people that those are the meaning of, of life for them. And, and so they live in this kind of this animal realm because in, in this interpretation, I don't think this is necessarily, necessarily true in real life, but in this interpretation, it's, um, they consider animals to be un, unintelligent and people go through that realm of, of being animals and removing ourselves from, from the intellect of life. And a part of that intellect is, is moving away from that, that id that only going for the things that, that allow us to survive and, and if you if you think that those are the those are the meaning of life is just surviving and reproducing, then maybe in the in your next life you'll you'll come back as a as a house dog or a house cat in your next reincarnation, and then then you get the comfy seat. And and now we'll go over here into this human realm. So so this human realm is is kind of exemplified on the outside of of this. And I would, I would say this is probably one of the most orderly places in the, in the circle in that it's kind of the, the, the mundaneness of, of life and, and then not mundane in a, in, in a negative way in any sense, but it's the, the day-to-day -day goings of, of meeting a lover and building something and exploring and, and being on your own and exploring yourself and, and, and having children. And so it's this, it's, it's the cycle, right? It's this, uh, we're, it, we're always going back to it. It's the, the, the cycle that is underneath our canopy and within our conscious mind. And so that's kind of what the, what the human, what the human rebirth is, is, is being able to explore and explore underneath our canopy and accept the, the place where we're at currently and, and, and bask in that order because order is something that we want and we don't want a life of consistent chaos and we don't want a life of consistent order, but, but when we do have that order, it is good to bask in it and, and kind of wait for that snake to, to introduce chaos. And then on this, this other side, we have a, we have a Sura and, and Asura are the demigods. And so, so we see here, they're very happy, um, but they're actually warring against the, the, the Buddha realm up here. This is the Buddha realm. These are the gods. And so they're very unhappy with the Buddha because the, the Buddha have this tree and this tree produces fruit, but they water the tree and they contain the trunk of the tree and, and they're, they're ungrateful for the tree. And so in that, so for that reason, they're, they're upset with the Buddha and the, the, the God realm. And that's kind of, that goes back to this, this middle hub of because because each of these have a reason why they they endure suffering for some reason so um so so in this sense the asura are they're experiencing suffering because they're they're greedy and they want what the buddha has in the tree and I'll, i think the tree is very significant <clears throat> but but they're watering the tree and they're not receiving the fruits from the tree so they become very frustrated and and that greed thrusts them from I think that I think that that's a an interesting paradox that the anger that they have towards the Buddhas for not being able to reap the benefits of the tree are actually the thing that keep them from that that enlightenment that the, that they're seeking and becoming Buddhahood and 
and, and experiencing that full Buddha nature. And so, so yeah, this is, this is their greed holding them down from experiencing that bliss. And if they would just let go of that greed and, and, um, and emphasize compassion, then maybe they would be reincarnated as the, the Buddha. Also reincarnation means to, to come back in, in another life as something different. So that kind of also goes in with that, that death rebirth cycle of you know, becoming a new you and going to hell and kind of re, redoing that. Sorry, my dogs are making a lot of noise. I hope you guys can't hear them. And now, now this is, I, I think my favorite, this one's a lot of fun. So, so this is, the, we'll start here. This is the tower and, and the tower is coming out of water. So, so this water represents chaos and the unknown. And so this tower is this thing that we build. And I think that this, uh, this can, can be tied into the, the, the Judeo-Christian representation of the Tower of Babel, which in the Old Testament, it's this idea that So in the, in the Old Testament, there's this, there's this idea. In the Old Testament, there's this idea of a, sorry, I'm one sec. Can you stop? So in the Old Testament, there's, there's this idea that, uh, <clears throat> so there's, there's the Tower of Babel and essentially everyone speaks the same language and they're creating this tower that the goal is to reach into heaven. And, and that's this idea that I think is particularly poignant, poignant in the, in the current political climate where we're, we're speaking all of these different languages about the same thing. And so we're unable to, uh, to come to a conclusion. And, and the idea with this tower is that if everyone speaks the same language and cooperates in, within their community, then, and, and they, and they share and they, they have constructive conflict within themselves because that's something that we can't remove from ourselves and from, from nature is conflict. And so, and so that's chaos again, and we have to bring order from that. And so our ability to speak the same language with one another introduces our ability to create order. And that's the idea of this tower is that we're creating order from chaos. And at the top of this tower, it's the same thing that they did with, uh, with the, the pyramids of Giza and also the, the monolith in Washington is that the, the top is the, it's a different mineral. It's a, it's a particularly rare mineral. So in Egypt, it was gold. I, I can't remember what the monolith was in, in Washington, but, but it's this idea that the, the hierarchy of values. And if we, if we have all of these values, there's something that comes to the top and that's the thing that our society should model itself after. And so in the, in the papyrus of Annie and, and in lots of other areas, it tends to be this idea of speaking the truth and being able to, to see and to observe ourselves. So that ties back into this, this pig of ignorance. And that's one of the, the, main, the main vessels of suffering is ignorance in that. And so that's, what, that's, what, that's what's at the top of this tower is, the, is our ideal. And we create that through speaking the same language and communicating with one another. And and then there's this tree, right? So we have to get to this tree. This is fun. Um, and the Buddha's floating. And I think that's a part of meditation because if you're, some, some people are able to achieve a meditative state where they, they enter um, a state of, of the feeling of floating. And it's the, it's when we lose proprioception. So proprioception is the, the, the understanding and awareness of where our, where our body is around us in time and space. 
and and so our arms i i know that my arm is here i know that this arm is here i know that my legs i know where my legs are i can bring conscious attention to them and in meditation you can get to this state where you where you lose all concept of where you are in the room in the world you could be upside down you feel you feel like you're floating and that's i think that's this idea of floating in meditation <clears throat> and and this buddha is consuming this fruit from the tree that the that the um the asura are, are super upset about because they're they've watered the tree and 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 then the buddha is reaping the benefits so so this tree's roots are very deep and strong and they they go throughout this entire place but only the buddha gets to reap the benefits of the tree and the fruit of the tree is really similar to the fruit of the tree in the garden of eden in that it, it gives consciousness to, to adam and eve and and it allows us to understand and to kind of be self-conscious of ourselves and and our environment and be aware of where we are and what we're doing and and i think that it, it's a different perspective from from buddha um it, it's a different perspective from judeo christianity in that the the fruit allows for self-awareness and consciousness so so this fruit allows for the the buddha to control the hub or at least to observe the hub because we can't control our thoughts we can't control the things that come into our head but but we're able to to assess our own biases and operate within the world in a in a way that seems reasonable and and that we can communicate and 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 build order out of chaos with the people that are around us and we can we can do that by by maneuvering out our own root system and by engaging our roots with the roots of others so that we create this web with each other and the best way to do that is through enlightenment which i think is exemplified in this tree in that is that enlightenment is one's ability to be conscious of oneself and so i think that's very cool that's that's the idea of of consciousness not necessarily being becoming self-conscious of who you are but self-conscious of the ideas that flow through your head and then back to the outside of this this is we have the buddha who who is outside of of the circle he's outside of time and the wheel of samsara and so that indicates that the the buddha nature is everywhere that this 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 nature of of becoming conscious of ourselves and enlightenment is is available to all of us and and it's not it's not within any constraints and we can all achieve it by by being self-conscious and by by being aware of our of our biases and and kind of understanding and incorporating that shadow because that's that's essentially what the buddha does with that enlightenment tree is he he incorporates the the parts of himself that the most people would shy away from and neglect or or kind of feed into just as the the ashman did with the um with greed and wanting to be at that tree the buddha understands that that everyone wants to be there and so they they're able to to acknowledge the the shadow within themselves before it begins to rot themselves dead and and they're pointing to a sun unfortunately this is this is cropped by the by the um the frame job and so there's actually a moon over here as well and the moon represents wholeness because it's only whole for for one day of its cycle of its of, of the lunar cycle every other day it's waxing and waning and and in crescents and and so that's this idea of wholeness and the self and that we 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 almost only get to be whole for these very isolated periods of time and for the the remainder 29 days of the month it's it we do, we don't get to be whole we're we're once again 
descending into chaos and back out into order and we're we're spending that time growing our roots so that we can so that we can enjoy the fruits of that labor and to to be underneath the canopy and and not get wet for a little while and and in that time chaos ensues and so i'll i'll leave you with one more thing before we before we depart um i think that there's a there was a very beautiful quote from Viktor Frankl, who was someone who survived four internment camps as his pregnant wife and parents uh, were unfortunately perished. But he was, a, he was someone that created something called logotherapy and logo being translated into meaning. And it was his goal to, to devise this method for people to find a way of life. And, and, and his main goal was to was to show people that responsibility was the best way to do that and to, to undergo responsibility willingly. And he actually, it was, it's funny, he says that uh, adjacent to the, the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast, there should be one on the West Coast called the, the Statue of Responsibility. And, and it's this idea that to have freedom and to have the, the capability to to, to stay within our roots when the storm comes and to not be washed away or swept by swept away by the flood. We need to undergo responsibility and, and in that way, throw ourselves voluntarily into chaos or, or voluntarily incorporate chaos into ourselves and into the, into the conscious mind by, by going step by step. And, and a big part of that is a big part of finding meaning in life. That's, that's the book that he wrote was man's search for meaning is that, to, to find meaning in life, you have to find responsibility. And, and, and a large part of that for him was he believed that the responsibility that we share as a collective is to, to help others also find responsibility. And so there's this, so, so he has this beautiful quote that I, I believe he got from Dostoevsky. And the quote says, I, I hope that I'm worthy of my suffering. And, and that's something that I've taken with me and I take to heart quite a bit because he was a spiritual man and, and as was Dostoevsky. And so, so maybe we're, maybe in some way we're, we're being tested by some omnipresent and omnipotent figure. And each time that we're, we're given the opportunity to, to suffer and we're thrown into chaos, it's an opportunity to become better and to learn and to, to manifest a self that is capable of being the best version of ourselves or someone that we'd look up to as a child or, ideally someone that we'd look up to now. And that's kind of the idea of it is that I want to be someone that I look up to in the future. And, and, and so I really like that idea of being worthy of suffering and not necessarily considering suffering to be a, an objective negative, but, but something that can make the world better as, as well of ourselves, as well as ourselves. And another thing that, uh, that Plato discussed was that uh, he says that humans are in a cave and we, we, we determine the reality of the world by the shadows thrown by the sun through the, through the mouth of the cave. And what I tried to do with this presentation was to create some kind of map and some kind of framework that hopefully will allow people to, to, to understand better what's really out there. Um, I think too often we're, we're very afraid of failure and we don't we don't, we don't dive into these concepts. And, and a, a large part of that is because storytelling has, has decreased with the, you could say there's maybe a cultural revolution to, to eliminate storytelling. And, and I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. 
and so what I've tried to do is make this a little bit more relatable and and not put things into a, a strictly religious and secular view and and I want people to understand that the maybe the dragons that they that they think are outside of the cave are are actually just shadows of ourselves and so thank you very much I really appreciate everyone being here the the, the support is is overwhelming and I, I thank you all very much.